This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back, every Bendy Body. This is the Bendy Bodies podcast, and I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. This is going to be a great episode, so be sure to stick around until the very end so you don't miss any of our special hypermobility hacks. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized medical advice. Physical therapy is commonly prescribed for those with symptomatic joint hypermobility, and many people experience tremendous success with PT, yet others struggle to achieve their goals. Today, your guest is Dr. Lillian Holm, DPT, who wrote a guest blog post for the Hypermobility MD website titled Hypermobile, Five Principles to Make Physical Therapy Work for You, which we will link in the show notes and was extremely popular. She is here today to provide you with more tips for making physical therapy work for you. Dr. Lillian Holm provides individualized physical therapy services, personal training, and consultations for those with hypermobility disorders worldwide. For 30 years, she facilitated the health journey of patients, drawing on experiences in Sweden, Finland, and many prestigious Chicago land clinics. She views physical therapy as part of the broader approach that incorporates treating both the human body and mind, as well as addressing lifestyle factors that are very important and often necessary in order to achieve the patient's goals. Her private practice is focused exclusively on patients with HSD and EDS. Dr. Holm, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, so many people have questions about physical therapy, right? I, they may have tried it or they didn't try it and you know want to make it work the best that they possibly can. So what can physical therapy do for people with symptomatic joint hypermobility? Well, I'm obviously very biased here, but it can do a, <laughs> a tremendous amount of good. And to me, that is sort of the most logical, straightforward way of addressing symptomatic joint hypermobility in terms of the musculoskeletal aspect of our symptoms. So uh, most people will always mention that they want to address their pain. And that, of course, goes without saying few people want to feel pain. But the way we get to the pain relief is by correcting function. So uh, correcting function is really the, the main goal. And what that means is just getting your ba body back to what I call its factory settings. So everything is working the way it should. And once you get there, I think a very important benefit is that then we can start to tolerate what I call uh, regular people exercise facetiously. In other words, tolerate uh, strengthening exercise, aerobic training, uh, that sort of thing, which is so important for all of us in order to not just feel good and energized and look good even, but to keep all the major uh, diseases at bay, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, um, all of that. It's well recognized, of course, that exercise improves mood and is a good treatment for uh, depression. And anxiety and depression are, of course, very prevalent among individuals with HSD and EDS. So once again, mm -hmm. using physical therapy to be able to uh, tolerate enough exercise to uh, reap those uh, benefits uh, is uh, one of the benefits. And then it can be a very supportive and injunctive treatment with uh, many comorbidities. So for example, compression syndromes can benefit greatly from uh, a more erect trunk, for example, to decrease the compression on the organs uh, or uh, uh, blood vessels that are being compressed. And um, really what it can do is help you achieve any goal that you have in your body where your physical body is involved. So thinking back to previous patients, it's been everything from just being able to return back to gainful employment, uh, 
be able to get back to running and for one patient even being able to climb a mountain for her children's wedding. That, wait, hang on a second. That's really interesting. So for her children's <laughs> wedding, was the wedding at the top of the mountain or something? <laughs> yes. Yes. For real? <laughs> yes. Interestingly enough. Wow. Yes, and this but, but she, wow. she would have hated to miss it. So that was a goal that we were. Yeah, of course. Work, so. Of course. No, no one wants to miss their own child's wedding. So, no, no. So we know that sometimes physical therapy does not lead to the expected outcome. And, and I'm also biased. I, I personally have been in and out of physical therapy since I was a teenager. And I, I firmly believe in, in physical therapy. I think sometimes, you know, it does take uh, some trial and error, finding the right physical therapist and that kind of thing. And we're going to get into that later in the conversation because I know a lot of people had questions about that, finding the right physical therapist and how do you know you found the right one, et cetera. Um, but maybe you could give us some reasons why physical therapy sometimes does not lead to the expected outcome. So the main reason is really that the system fails the patient. And what I mean by that is that uh, a hypermobile patient, the symptomatic hypermobile patient, requires a very specific approach. And as you know, we as healthcare professionals don't learn anything about uh, EDS and HSD during our educational process, mm -hmm. at least not enough for it to be actionable. And uh, hypermobile patients need to turn to specialists, but very logically, of course, uh, assume that they can just go to any clinic and meet any therapist and and receive appropriate treatment but just like other professions there are physical therapy is a very broad um, area and one person can't specialize in everything so you can't be simultaneously mm -hmm. specialized in pediatrics pelvic floor therapy sports therapy neurological rehab etc so we each choose our area of, area of interest and specialization uh, so really the hypermobile patient should uh, ideally turn to someone with uh, expertise in the area, but that can of course be hard to find. And we can talk later more about how to, how to go about that. So the second uh, issue is something that hypermobile patients have in common with other patients. And that is that up to 70% of patients drop out before they're done with physical therapy. And that can, of course, happen due to a variety of reasons, but one of the main reasons is probably that they're not quite prepared for what physical therapy is going to look like. They may expect that it's going to be a, a, a faster process than it is. They may expect that the care is going to be more palliative, that they're going to come in, perhaps get a hot pack and some ultrasound or a little massage or some sort of more passive treatment. and. The truth is that we can't change the musculoskeletal system without activity. So the participation on the patient's part is, is crucial and um, needs to be ongoing. So it's good to be prepared and have a realistic expectation uh, for that as well. That makes sense. So 70% of people do not complete their course of physical therapy. That That's a really important statistic. And, and that is not specific to people with EDS and HSD, right? You're just saying that's that's Correct. a general statistic, Correct. right? Yeah. 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 So I wonder what it would be for people with EDS and HSD. I bet it's higher. Yeah, I've never calculated in, in my practice. It's not quite that high, but, uh, mm -hmm. but it's certainly... You know, it is a high percentage. And sometimes it's just uh, that I think patients go along with therapy for a while, start to feel better. And what I see happening often is that they guess that they are now ready to start working out, for example. And they don't mm, realize mm -hmm. uh, that they could use me as a resource because we have uh, for many activities, there are very objective tests and measures that can tell us whether your body is ready for the activity or not. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. instead, they may kind of start some strengthening program online or at the gym or what have you. And then a few months later, they come back with injuries, unfortunately. So I would encourage mm -hmm. everyone to really communicate about everything with your therapist. We're not trying to hold you back. We're trying to get you to your goal as quickly as possible, but 
kind of like an airline pilot, not just as quickly as possible, but also safely. So, Right, right. That's a good analogy. I like that analogy a lot. I, I feel like it could be either direction, that people drop out because they feel like they don't need to finish the course. They feel like they're ready, like you said, to exercise on their own or do movement on their own. Or it, they could feel like uh, the physical therapy that they're doing is actually, at least I hear this a lot from my patients, that they feel like it's making them worse or that it's mm -hmm. exacerbating their symptoms. And rather than going back to the physical therapist and giving them that feedback and giving them the opportunity to change up the home exercise program, um, instead, sometimes it seems like they, they, they probably stop going. I, I think that happens probably to quote normal people if there is such a thing, um, yeah. as well as people with EDS and HSD. <laughs> and, and of course, if the therapy is actually making you feel worse, then something is going wrong. So right. if right. Uh, a frank discussion with the therapist doesn't help change the course of the therapy, uh, then of course you should vote with your feet and you should be part of that 70% and, right. and stop going. So we're not there to please the therapist. The therapist is in the service of the patient. So that's of course right. a very important point. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, so speaking of, um, how do people who have EDS, HSD, symptomatic joint hypermobility of, of any sort, how do they go about finding the best possible physical therapist for them? That's a, that's a great question. So again, back to the idea of uh, specialization. Uh, you know, if, if you needed an endodontist, you wouldn't go to an orthodontist or a periodontist or what have you. You would go to the endodontist for your root canal. And in the same way, mm -hmm. I do feel very strongly that it's important that people with EDS and HSD uh, understand that they, they need to be treated very differently with, with a, a good understanding of um, you know everything from comorbidities to possible central sensitization, the, the whole shebang. Right? I, I think to look for a uh, someone who's either specializes in hypermobility conditions or at least where a very large percentage of their patient population presents with these conditions would be important. And you could find people like that through directories, maybe through online support groups, through a web search. Uh, you could familiarize yourself with practitioners on social media sometimes if they're active uh, there, that sort of thing. Uh, what you don't want to do is just make an appointment at any random you know, chain clinic or hospital-based clinic and show up and hope for the best because that would be a little bit like going to a family practitioner hoping for very specific advice on a neurological disorder or something that isn't really within mm -hmm. the area of expertise of that family practitioner. And a lot of people will, of course, say, well, there is no such person in my geographical area, and that can yeah, often yeah. happen. And and what do you do then? And as a second option, I would um, actually encourage people to work with someone online. I have seen that lots of people who treat hypermobile patients offer services online, just like I do. So that is a really, really good option. I have to admit that prior to COVID, I would have felt a bit skeptical about that because I wasn't familiar with mm. it. But it's actually mm. a really, uh, really good option. And it actually saves time, too, because you don't have to travel anywhere, sit in the waiting room and that sort of thing. You just, you know, connect from the convenience of your own home and, and save time as well. And uh, if the therapist is licensed in your state, then those services tend to be covered by your insurance as well. Uh, both Medicare mm. and private insurers pay for telehealth services. And if those options don't work, then the last one would perhaps be a little bit imperfect, but uh, might work as well, depending on the severity of the uh, condition. And that would be to find uh, someone who is not necessarily uh, familiar with hypermobility conditions, but that you could have an open uh, conversation with and you get the sense and a promise that they're open to learning and you could maybe direct them to the 
ADS Association's website. And if you're a very knowledgeable patient, which a lot of people are very knowledgeable about your <laughs> condition, you could uh, ask them if, if they're open to you telling them a bit about your specific condition and your previous experiences and that, and, and then uh, work with them. And sometimes you can get that therapist to accept some input from someone. Uh, so I have worked that way with a patient where I've done a consultation with them. They're not in my geographical area, that sort of thing. And they want to work with a local therapist. And then I can, uh, you know, consult that local therapist a little bit on, on hypermobility if they're open to that. And uh, that can be a third option. That, that sounds like a, a good way to go if somebody is, I, yeah, I get messages all the time from people that are in remote areas and have difficulty uh, finding someone for sure. So that, mm -hmm. that seems like those are really nice options to, to lay out. And another thing that I often tell people is find out what the model is for that particular clinic, because I myself having, like I said, been in physical therapy in and out since I was a teenager, some places, you know, you'll see the physical therapist the first time, and then you're going to work with the physical therapy assistant a number of times, and they'll have multiple people in, in one big room, and they're kind of floating around, but, but you're not actually seeing the same physical therapist every time. And I personally, right now, I'm going to a physical therapist, I'm paying cash. I'm paying out of network. Um, but that's because I get to see the same physical therapist every time. And um, she's you know, knowledgeable about joint hypermobility and the implications. And also, uh, the other thing I want to mention is a lot of physical therapists do listen to this podcast. I've gotten messages from lots of physical therapists that have found the podcast helpful. So it's another great way for people to learn how to work with hypermobile bodies. Yeah, this is really such so. a great resource. Really, I think the best resource out there for all things hypermobility. So I'm really happy to hear that. And and yeah, thank you for mentioning what is euphemistically called care extenders. I don't think that's a safe situation, to be quite frank, because again, if you are relying on the expertise of the therapist and their back is turned and they're just delegating to someone else who, again, may not be so familiar with the peculiarities of hypermobility, you know, the risk is always that if the patient gets worse, then it's not just a waste of time and, and a lack of improvement. It can also be very discouraging. Uh, the patient yeah. falsely may get the impression that they can't be helped. Uh, it contributes right. to the fear of the healthcare system in general, and, and it's just not something we want to have happen. Yeah, de definitely. And that, that can be so discouraging when, when things like that happen. Yeah. And, and how does someone know when they have found the right physical therapist? Well, uh, again, if you have very good reason to expect or know that they have a great deal of uh, experience with hypermobility conditions, uh, that is, of course, you know, a, a, a very good sign. And hypermobility uh, is, it has something in common with sports medicine in that, you know, usually you're, you don't need for your practitioner to have your disease. You don't want your cardiologists to have heart disease necessarily. But just like with sport medicine, actually helps if the sports medicine therapist is active in, in an athletic endeavor, that they're actually mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. familiar with sports and not just in a theoretical sure. sense. And I find that that is also true for EDS and HSD, that there it's actually helpful because it's very hard, I uh, think, to, to understand this from the outside. And other good signs would, of course, be that you have a very good and open communication, that you uh, feel that the therapist is taking you seriously, listening to your mm -hmm. input, and again, is, is very interested in, in learning how uh, these conditions have to be treated a, a little differently. And, and being on the receiving end of physical therapy, uh, I really like working with a physical therapist who, who's creative. You know, they might say, I want you to, let's try doing this particular exercise. And I've had wrist surgery and I've had major elbow surgery and I've had a lot. So 
I've had so many different surgeries, so sometimes they'll have to adapt the the exercise for me. And I hear other people say, well, sometimes the physical therapist like gets annoyed with them. So if the if the physical therapist mm. is is like immediately, okay, let's figure out how we can do this in a way that's not so hard on your wrist or, you know, that kind of thing. I feel like that's a, I feel like that's a really big sign, a really good sign, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. That's so important with hypermobility because there's so many different things that get in the way, you know, the wrist, the neck, this, that, and the other. So we constantly have to find ways to, to personalize the treatment, right? There's no mm -hmm. one fits all approach that you can apply. It, it has to be incredibly individualized. Right, right. And what do you do about uh, people who don't like to exercise? I, I try to use um, the words movement and activity when I'm talking with patients and try to explain to them that the goal is not to get them, you know, doing crazy amounts of exercise, but to get them moving more and doing more activity and increasing their quality of life and that kind of thing. Um, is there a different approach that you take to pe with people who don't want to exercise per se? I actually think that it's not natural for us to want to exercise. Uh, you know, when you think about mm. it, no adult mammal exerts energy, expends energy if they're not hunting or, or, you know, running away or something like that. So if a lioness mm. hunts and eats well, then she rests under a tree for the next three days. She doesn't run around like her cubs do because then she'd be using up mm. energy and need to go hunt again sooner. So that would just be a vicious cycle. So as an adult human being, you don't have the same desire to run around and, and learn and practice like a kid. So we actually would get our exercise under, you know, hunter-gatherer conditions just because we got hungry and had to go out looking for food and shelter and what have you. But now we live in a, in a, a culture where we don't have to do that so movement has become optional and since we still don't want to move more than we have to now we have to motivate ourselves intellectually so for mm. the vast majority of us i don't think we can wait to feel inspired i don't think we can wait to say gosh i just really want to go run around and exercise right now we just have to mm -hmm. be uh, motivated through logic and our overall goals so that we're not trying to have you know be drawn to the exercise per se but we're drawn forward we pulled forward by our goal by our understanding of what it's going to do for us so i recommend just seeing it as uh, a non-negotiable like brushing your teeth or washing your clothes because that's how important it is right just just get it done mm -hmm. and the great thing is that uh we have scientific data showing that our ability to motivate ourselves or at least overcome lack of motivation to be a bit more disciplined, for example, about exercise, grows as we, uh, as we overcome that hesitancy. So there's an area mm. in the brain called the anterior mid-cingulate that is uh, very strongly connect connected to willpower tenacity, perseverance, that sort of thing. And when we do something that we don't quite feel like doing, but we do it anyway, for example, get up and go do those therapeutic exercises that are your homework, that area actually grows. And then mm. overcoming that hesitancy actually gets easier. And I actually personally enjoy that thought a lot. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm about to exercise because that's where it fits into my life. I rarely want to do it. You know, I would like to stay in bed and read and research. That's my favorite thing. But I know <sighs> that I need it. And I most certainly want the outcome. I want to stay healthy. I want to stay functional. Mm -hmm. uh, that becomes more and more obvious as you get older. <laughs> to need it. Mm -hmm. And I want to continue yes, aging definitely. well. <laughs> so that's what draws me. And then that little, eh, I'd rather stay in bed. I know that it, it's it's gotten easier and easier and easier, and now I know why because we actually change um, as we as we act with uh, discipline, and it really helps to not think about do I want to do that exercise right now, but to think about do I want that outcome, like think forward mm -hmm. in time a little bit. 
Yeah, no, that 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 uh, is very good advice. I really appreciate that, and will be good motivation for me as well. I feel like some people are more naturally um, driven to exercise more and have like a higher uh, energy level, and other people really do have to push themselves more. So I, it's very helpful to know mm-hmm. that you actually activate parts of your brain that actually will make it easier if you if you just keep doing it and and, uh, and everything. So. If people have tried to exercise or attended physical therapy, but then felt more tired or kind of more sore afterwards um, or resulted in more pain, um, what can they do? So when things go in the wrong direction, then that's a clear sign that the therapy was not properly calibrated, right? You weren't Mm -hmm. ready for what you were doing. And... I often like an exercise to, especially prescribed therapeutic exercise, but really all exercise could be thought of in the same way as we think of prescription medication. You are are prescribed a medication specifically based on your needs, your symptoms and whatnot. You are prescribed a specific dose that you'll take at a specific frequency for a specific duration of time. So all exercise needs to be calibrated. And just like when you prescribed a medication, maybe you got something for your anxiety and depression and it didn't work so well, uh, what the psychiatrist will do is maybe play with the dose a little bit, try another medication, etc. Exercise is a little bit like that, that you can't always know precisely what's going to happen. So if there are any negative outcomes, then we need to recalibrate. And I always tell every single patient uh, at the beginning of therapy that I never want you to hurt, not while you're performing an exercise, not after, not as a result of having performed an exercise. Because if it hurts, that's your body's voice telling you to change something. Uh, if it hurts, it is bothering your joints and it's bothering your muscles. Something is going wrong. And you are either performing an exercise that is too demanding for you, you're not ready for it yet, or you have misunderstood it, or maybe you understood it very clearly, but your proprioception is <laughs> leading you to not mm-hmm. perform it quite the way it was intended. But any negative symptom, any negative outcome always means that something is going on and it needs to be recalibrated. Maybe we we have missed what I call a weak link, right? We all have some weak Mm. links and a typical hypermobile patient has multiple, multiple weak links at the beginning of therapy. Maybe the hip is not well stabilized. Maybe the lumbopelvic area, Mm. the low back and the pelvis aren't quite stable. And then when we try to use our bodies, those areas will talk to us. So that's always a sign to pull back. I, I like the idea of the weak links because I feel like oftentimes when this happens to people, they blame themselves. And sometimes we do have bodies where we do have uh, dysfunction or weak links in multiple different parts of the body and, the, and everything's connected, right? So an, uh, a weak link someplace else is going to affect exercises for a different part of the body potentially. Very, very true, yeah. And and, and I notice uh, from what patients tell me about their previous experiences online, and even sometimes with my patients, even though I always start with, you are not supposed to feel pain, they will still go into their exercises with the expectation that it must hurt for me to get better. That can be mm. a very mm. uh, deeply rooted belief. So I think it's important Mm -hmm. to communicate with the therapist immediately. Don't feel like you have to push through pain. That is a horrible expression to me. I don't want to hear that. (laughs) There's there's always a better way of doing it that is specific and well-suited to you in this moment. And and that's a perfect lead into a question that someone had asked online, which was in anticipation of this interview, which was how can someone convey to their physical therapist that they don't benefit from working to muscle failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the muscle failure is a term that can easily be misunderstood. So in order to strengthen muscles, we do need to fatigue them. And I think that's a, a better concept that's going to communicate more clearly to the patient what we're actually going for. 
we don't want you to end up on the floor in a puddle of sweat. Uh, muscle fatigue is something that tr triggers muscle growth. And especially when we're working mm -hmm. on those uh, bigger uh, uh, external movement muscles, we do need to fatigue them in order to trigger them to grow. But fatigue is very clearly and specifically uh, defined as when you can no longer perform the exercise with good form. So soon mm. as your form starts to change and not look quite so perfect anymore, that by definition means that the muscle that you're targeting is now tired and you are done. You should not mm. continue. And I think that is a much more clear uh, message and doesn't convey to the patient that they should keep pushing until they can't push anymore. Because if they do, they will be performing a lot of exercise in the range where they are getting it wrong, where the target muscle is mm -hmm. already tired and now there's a lot of compensation and what I jokingly call cheating, and that can start to <laughs> irritate tissues. And probably reinforce suboptimal neuromuscular patterns and things like that as well, right? 100%, yes, exactly right. Okay. Um, are there other common misconceptions about physical therapy for joint hypermobility that we should be aware of? So again, I think that one of the most common ones is that physical therapy should hurt. And one mm -hmm. of the names we're given is physical th terrorist, right? And Oh, I've never heard that actually. <laughs> no, oh. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> or physical torture <gasps> or something like that. Right. So, um, right. again, leaving, leaving other specialty fields aside, maybe there's a place for pain somewhere else, I don't know. But in uh, hypermobility rehabilitation, I'm absolutely uh, against it. So therapy mm -hmm. should not hurt. It should be a gradual progression in, in uh, the right direction. So that pain component is a common misperception. Another one is that you go, you get your exercises, these are your hypermobility exercises, and now you do them. And a better way to think about therapy is to use the, uh, uh, the idea of school. You start in mm. first grade, you work on the material in first grade, and once you've mastered it, you're ready to move to second grade, and so on. And mm -hmm. uh, that way, you, you're progressing constantly, and at the end of this progression, you have your long-term overall goal. And just like if, if a kid was placed in third grade instead of first grade at first, they would not be able to pick up on the material, and they would fail, and they would end up with the misconception that they are learning disabled, that they can't learn the material, but they're just mm. in the wrong grade. So when, mm -hmm. when we try to start too far out or even start where we want to end up, then failure is the most likely option and then we believe that we can't be helped. So if you think of therapy mm -hmm. as a school, the first exercises that you're given, you want to see those as your homework, your, your task is to master them, get rid of them and move on to the next exercise, which builds on the first and gradually you're moving on to more and more complex compound movements functional movements and getting closer and closer to your overall goal. So that's, uh, that's a, an, um, a very common misconception that it's more of a static thing as opposed to a dynamic progressive thing in, in the right direction. Okay. And are there other things that patients can do in order, especially keeping in mind these common problems that people with joint hypermobility face, are there other things that people can do in order to achieve the best possible outcome from their physical therapy besides the fabulous things that you've mentioned already? Yes. Uh, again, thinking of the, of the uh, medicine analogy, uh, really try to be uh, very, very uh, regular and persistent with your homework so that you, you dose your exercise correctly. Every time you exercise, you're stimulating your body, you're creating changes, desirable changes that move you closer to your goals. Another very important thing is to remember to communicate 
very closely with your therapist. It's it's impossible for the therapist mm -hmm. to kind of guess what you're feeling. So instead of saying, mm -hmm. this exercise hurts, just describe exactly what you're feeling. Where do you feel it? What does it feel like? When did it start? That sort of thing. The more we know, uh, the more we can help you. And there are no stupid questions. So so it's always better to, to ask. And I, I even tell my patients, they, they get an exercise app to use, so I encourage them to contact me through the app between sessions even, so that if they mm -hmm. have questions, just reach out so that you're always on the right track. And again, the same thing holds mm -hmm. true for when you're done. Don't just assume that you're done because we can make sure that you are ready for your whatever your overall goal is. Okay. And we got some really great questions from uh, people online that knew that I was going to be interviewing you. So I'd love to go into some of those. Um, people asked about, multiple people asked how to reset the boom and bust cycle and how to know when to rest versus keep going with uh, gentle exercises. The boom and the bust. Yes. <laughs> well, the simple answer is just don't. Just don't. Don't do it. But I've been there myself, so I'm definitely not pointing mm -hmm. fingers. It's it's all too easy to end up there. But when you've had a few cycles of boom and bust, then uh, it's it's time to realize that this is not sustainable, and it's a, it's it's a very wearing way to live uh, to go from uh, inactivity because you're so tired to overactivity that you're not ready for. So just, uh, again, you can use your therapist if, if uh, especially if the boom and bust has anything to do with your exercise goals. But uh, I think it's useful to look at rehabilitation very, very broadly. So I, I, I do speak about a very broad range of topics with my patients. If they're not sleeping, for example, we need to resolve that or they will not get any results with their, uh, right. with their therapy. And of course, we live in the real world and we have tasks that need to be done. So if the boom part involves something that's more or less unavoidable, just do your very best to delegate, to pace yourself, um, especially if uh, you're still at the stage where it's difficult to tolerate an upright position, for example, uh, mm -hmm. if, uh, if what you're doing is something in the kitchen or by the computer and you're getting really tired, part of the discomfort you're feeling is that you are tensing external muscles that aren't really well designed for that static ongoing work. And you only need to mm. contract your muscles at about 30% of their maximum contraction to cut off the blood circulation and the oxygen supply. So now your muscles are mm -hmm. not getting oxygen and you're hurting. And just lying down for 10 minutes or even five minutes and resting your head so that you don't have to hold it up against gravity can really reset you and help you tolerate the activity if it's something that you really do have to, uh, to take care of. And I think that ties into what I often tell people about listening to the to their body in the right in the right way with the correct ear, because I think oftentimes we get anxiety and we so then we kind of don't listen to our body's signals and and we if we're in pain a lot of the time then we just we're kind of so used to having kind of a low level chronic low level of pain, but if we can listen with a more curious mindset and think, okay, I'm actually starting to feel some discomfort. Maybe I should go lay down for a few minutes, but not go into that anxious part of the mind. Oh my gosh, what's happening now? You know, I think that's a really good um, tip to really be mm -hmm. able to, as, as you said, you know, uh, avoid that boom and bust to say, okay, maybe I need to just take a little rest, let my muscles relax before I continue uh, going on with this, like you said, work in the kitchen or whatever it is that a person is doing. Yeah. And I think it's very important to be able to learn to distinguish between true energy. Do you really have energy or are you just in a sympathetic nervous system overdrive in, in fight or flight? Mm. Because hypermobile mm -hmm. people tend to spend a lot of time 
in that mode. There are so many factors that push us towards that. So go take a look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Are your pupils really dilated? Maybe you are just in sympathetic nervous system overdrive and not really energized and ready to be super, super active. And another way to find out if you truly are rested and energized is to go relax, do a relaxation uh, guided meditation or just do some deep breathing or relax your body. And if you get sleepy when you relax, start yawning and just feel tired, you did not, you were actually not truly rested. You were just high on on adrenaline and cortisol. And then it's not a good time to go flying around and use that fake energy, even if it may feel good in the moment, Mm -hmm. because that will result in that bust, because there's only so long you can, you know, go on all cylinders. And we should be spending much more time in parasympathetic nervous system mode and, and not always be revved up. What a fabulous point. Yes, I think that probably applies to a lot of people. <laughs> I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. I would think okay. so. Okay, yes. another, que- yeah. <laughs> An- another question that multiple people asked was they wanted to know what your professional opinion was about the Muldoni physical therapy protocol. Yes, that's an interesting question. So I would start out by saying that you know, as you know, in science, the goal is not to arrive at a static consensus. It's it's rather a gradual push forward, a search for always finding the best way of, of doing things. So just like in science in general, there is a lot of disagreement in physical therapy. There is not just one way of looking at things or doing things. And that's a really fabulous thing because that keeps it dynamic and keeps us going in the right direction. And uh, when it comes to the Maldoni protocol, I, uh, I'm not very fond of it uh, for a number of reasons. It's just that I look at things differently and I go about things uh, differently. So it's not something that I would recommend. Uh, a couple of reasons would be that uh, rather than uh, doing some predetermined exercises, the same for everyone, I like to be more specific, individualized, and granular. Just like you previously mentioned, mm-hmm. the, the faulty movement patterns, that's a big problem with hypermobility. We have survived for a long time just tensing and bracing and doing all sorts of things that aren't really the right and, and uh, uh, gentle way of using the body. And if we go straight to whole body functional exercises, we're just going to drag all those movement patterns with us. So I like to start with a much more mm-hmm. granular approach, making sure that any muscle that is not firing correctly, any muscle that is weak but is needed for the next step, first gets awakened. So again, I think of that as finding those weak links and uh, correcting them. And uh, the other part that I don't agree with is bringing a book to your therapist and asking them <laughs> what you perform exercises out of a book. That's a little bit like, uh, you know, bringing an instruction manual to tell your dentist how to drill your teeth or bringing, a, right. uh, expecting uh, someone to do surgery with a manual that you brought along. <laughs> you sh- you right. would not trust right. that surgeon. <laughs> and if you... Right. If you find a therapist that would agree to work that way, you have probably not found uh, the right therapist. So I don't, uh, the sort of one size fits all and, and just doesn't, doesn't uh, really, it's not a good match for how I think about things. But I do agree with him on a couple of points, definitely. Uh, one is understanding that therapy for uh, a very symptomatic person with joint hypermobility has to take time. It's going to take a while and we need to progress gradually and, uh, you know, gradually work our way to the end goal. And the other point that I really strongly agree with is uh, his thoughts on uh, manipulating the hypermobile body, especially the pelvis. We have to be extremely gentle there. I strongly caution my patients against allowing any high velocity manipulations and I've actually developed techniques for that myself where I don't use any force at all. I don't apply any force to the patient's body. 
mm. and it works anyway. So he's absolutely right about that. We need to be uh, very careful there, but it's not a work that I would, you know, lean on or generally recommend for those reasons. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And and what metrics do you use to measure success for the patient? Um, somebody specifically asked that after they said that after working with multiple different physical therapists, they felt that their physical fitness level had not improved at all, and they wanted to know about that metrics. Mm-hmm. Great question. So uh, we would have an overall goal. So let's say the patient's goal is to end up tolerating a specific type of, of physical activity. And let's say for, for argument's sake that they want to be able to tolerate a little bit of aerobic conditioning and some strengthening, that's their goal. And they're starting at a point where that is not appropriate for them at all. Then what would happen, there's actually a very, very logical progression to that goal. Well, you could almost think about it as a staircase that you need to start here, take the first step, start working on, on uh, certain areas of the body that are prerequisites for the next area. So, and, and this actually happens to coincide with how we develop as babies. We need to have trunk stability mm. first. And then, so the first thing a baby does is maybe turn over on the floor. And then they start mm -hmm. to creep and crawl, developing stability in the shoulders and hips. And then after that, they start to stand up, and that's when they learn to control their knees and their feet, and only then do they develop fine motor control in the hands. So, and, and this is not random, it's, it's for biomechanical reasons. So that same mm -hmm. order is very much visible in, in physical therapy too, when we're progressing up that staircase towards that uh, long-term goal. So how do we measure success? We want to see each and every level conquered. So if you want to be able to uh, tolerate uh, pulling and pushing, whether it's for your activities of daily living or exercise or because you have a baby on the way, uh, you first need to develop stability in the lumbar pelvic area to hold your spine up. Mm -hmm. Then you need to have a stable rib cage and your arms are not attached to your rib cage, attached to your shoulder blades. So the next step would be to develop stability and control around the shoulder blades. And then from there on, you could start to practice actually pushing and pulling and doing something with those arms that are now strongly anchored to your body. So it would be a very, uh, very straightforward process to uh, make sure that we have met all of those steps. Now. If you are starting from a very unstable place, you are, of course, not really feeling uh, strong yet, right? You're, you're working on stability, not strength. It's very different muscles produce strength in the body. And your aerobic conditioning is not improving through the uh, stabilization exercise. So if you're getting a little anxious during the rehabilitative process about that, again, talk to the therapist, and then you'll find out that you will get to the strengthening phase, and that perhaps if you feel like you want a little more exercise in your life, you need it for mental, emotional reasons, and just work to work on your aerobic conditioning, you could, for example, include a stationary bike, for example. So there's flexibility there, but we, we don't get from point A to C without, you know, through going through all the other stepping stones in between. And that's mm -hmm. very, very measurable. And, I, and I've noticed for me in physical therapy, I, I can go and make significant gains, but then something happens, I, I travel and so I'm not as compliant with my exercise or various different, th or, you know, you get sick or something like that. And also mm -hmm. I think it's important for most people to be aware that the pro the progress is often not linear, right? That we can, you know, five steps forward, two back, six forward, five mm -hmm. back that, you know, uh, but, but hopefully we're building on uh, some success. That's, that's very true. And uh, 
that's of course true throughout our life too. Things can happen where there's a setback right. and then we're making a comeback again. But during those times when you're busy or traveling or what have you, illness, for example, I encourage my patients to do what I call treading water, meaning that if, if you're metaphorically swimming across a lake, for example, and you can't swim right now because you're traveling or whatever, you also don't want to sink to the bottom of the lake. So you're going to do a little something that, you're, that doesn't mm -hmm. help you progress, but it's going to help you uh, maintain. So I had a patient recently mm -hmm. who was home sick with COVID for a while, and I had been seeing her for a while. So she was well prepared and very diligent. So she still remembered to keep doing some stabilizing exercises while lying in bed. And she was able mm -hmm. to make a really good comeback uh, very quickly, thanks to treading water, right? Not dropping the ball 100%, yeah. but understandably not working on her normal level. Wow, I just love how you worded that. That is really fabulous. And I like the idea of a comeback because I feel like that's really yeah. empowering to people. You know, hey, I just made a comeback. <laughs> so yeah. I think oftentimes yeah. we, people with EDS and HSD, we, we tend to get hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up for the things that we haven't accomplished and forget the things that we have. And I think in a lot of cases, we're actually very resilient because we've had to overcome so many things, especially at younger ages, compared to people that have not had these problems. Absolutely. And all we just need to remember to do is to look back and say, I have faced this before and I overcame mm -hmm. it right. and I will overcome it again. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Lots so what comics. about balancing... Yeah, lots of comebacks, exactly. <laughs> um, what about balancing stretching with strengthening? Um, for me specifically, I went through a period of my life where I, I didn't stretch at all. I was having so many problems with my low back and my hamstrings. And, and so everything just, I, I know part of it's neurologic, but everything just like tightened up so much. So how do you advise people with hypermobile bodies um, to balance those two things? Yeah. Um, I'm laughing a little bit because I used to be—I used to be the very flexible young person who thought ah, stretching—that's that's not something I mm. need. And now, of course, I have a very different opinion. <laughs> but stretching and right. stretching and strengthening—they bring their 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 own important benefits. So it's like saying, how do you balance carbohydrates and protein? Well, maybe you need both, <laughs> and you need them, you know on an individual basis. So if you're very physically active, you might need more carbohydrates. And in the same way, uh, how much stretching, what you need to stretch specifically, is just determined on your individual needs, your findings, right? Some people have very, very tight hip flexors that get in the way. And the way you would balance that would very often look uh, like this. You might be doing stretching of the tight muscles, and then you would do some strengthening and activation of the opposite muscles, which in that case would be the glutes. Hmm. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, both, both are important, but they're also interdependent. So a muscle will often become uh, tight and when its opposite muscle is underactive. So all muscles in the body have hmm. an opposite one. So if something moves you this way, there's an opposite muscle that moves you in the other direction. And we, as a general rule, tend to become very tight in front, our chest muscles become tight, our hip flexors become tight, mm -hmm. and then we become weak in the back. Mo many people just mm -hmm. use their glutes as a cushion, not as something to propel them <laughs> forward in life. And, uh, and the back of the shoulder girdle oh. tends to become weak. So mm -hmm. you can see how in those cases you might stretch one side and then you need it would strengthen the opposite side and that combination would give you the, the best uh, results. But then if, if the person who's asking is thinking about conquering more range of motion, that, that your uh, shoulder has been very tight and now you're you know, regaining that mobility, then it's of course very important to work on your stability in that range so you don't want to mm -hmm. be able to do you know fall into the splits but not have muscle control in that position so that's another important consideration mm -hmm. okay 
Uh, I'm sure you have seen this before. I certainly have, especially sometimes with young people. They end up getting so many accumulated medical problems and for a variety of reasons end up um, spending most of the time in bed or becoming bed bound. Um, of course, you don't know any one individual person's situation, but how can somebody start walking again once they have gotten to a point where things are that severe? Do you have any thoughts about that? First, you have to have hope and a belief that it can be done. So think mm -hmm. about other people who have done it. See if you can find any role models, any examples, someone else who's done it. Many people have done it. I have had many patients who have done it. And then you start building back on, on your body. It kind of in that same logical, biomechanically determined order that we discussed previously. And first step exercises can be done in bed. And so you can start waking up your pelvic floor in bed. You can start waking up your deepest abdominal muscles in bed. You can even start waking up your supportive spinal muscles in bed. So you can actually arm yourself mm -hmm. with a little bit of stability that way. And then you just think about the fact that your body needs to very gradually, both in terms of orthostatic tolerance, being, being able to be upright against gravity, in terms of your mitochondrial functioning, your ability to produce energy, there's a lot of separate partial comebacks built in there uh, sure. that you need to work on. But again, it's not about just trying to stand up and walk off. It's uh, it's yeah. it's a uh, your overall goal is to get up and become mobile again, and you want to strategize with someone who can help you about the partial steps along the way so you can get there yeah there's probably a lot of steps in between in between there i would think what what about uh another specific question before we kind of wrap up here what about people who have hypermobile eds and scoliosis we know scoliosis is definitely more common with connective tissue disorders mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts about physical therapy for people with scoliosis so again, ideally, I think that's a great example of where you can find expertise and that's going to serve you the best. So there are physical therapists that, that are specialized in the treatment of scoliosis and looking for someone like mm -hmm. that, again, in person, ideally, if not uh, second best option online, that's really uh, what you want to do. Uh, one little tit tidbit there that is also more common in hypermobility is that uh, in my experience most people with scoliosis have uh, an unevenness in the pelvis so if your pelvis mm. is not straight but it's tilted see your pelvis as a flower pot and then your spine like the flower stalk and that's going to grow mm. now sideways and just like the flower tries to get up to the sun our body has very strong writing reflexes that want to get the head over the body. And now you mm. have a scoliosis. So mm. if you see a scoliosis developing in a kid, in someone who's still growing, uh, especially, it can be very useful to have someone look at their pelvic alignment and see if there's some contributing factor there. And I've actually had uh, patients that were still pre-pubertal and uh, were starting to develop a scoliosis. Uh, one girl, for example, had both a leg length discrepancy and uh, an ilium, her hip bone that kept rotating and that seemed to be creating the scoliosis. And as uh, I followed her through her growth spurt, through puberty, and every summer when she didn't attend physical therapy and didn't use her heel lifts, then the, the curvature came back. And then during the school year, uh, it straightened out as she kept growing and we kept everything below the spine level. And in the end, she was mm -hmm. able to go through puberty a bit, but for someone who's already uh, an adult and, and uh, looking for the best possible outcome there, see if you can find someone who is an expert on that. Okay. That's a great analogy about the, about the pelvis and the plant and that, that flower pot. That makes perfectly good sense. I like that. So uh, can you just let us know where people can learn more about you after this episode? And also someone asked if you had any informational documents that people can share with their own physical therapists. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the places where you can find me is my website, and that's simply my name, Lillian Holm, one L in the middle. And there is a tab about hypermobility, and there is a document, admittedly a work in progress, but there is a document that you can uh, download that starts with Dear Colleague. So it's, it's uh, directed to a physical therapist who uh, may not be familiar with hypermobility disorders. And there's a brief description of, of what they are and how they may affect the patient and, uh, uh, you know, some of the most important things to keep in mind. Uh, so that exists there. And then you can find me on Instagram as Hypermobility Doctor and on Facebook as well. I will link that in the show notes so everyone can find those uh, places very well, very easily, I should say. And last question, can you tell us some of your favorite hypermobility hacks? Sure. How many can we list? <laughs> so As I many as you want. Most, <laughs> I would say that the most important one is start where you are. Please don't try to start with the activity that you eventually want to be able to tolerate. Start where you are. Mm -hmm. And again, you can find out where you are perhaps best uh, with the help of a, of a therapist. But even if you're not having physical therapy, if you want to run, you need to be able to walk first. So mm -hmm. uh, the level that you want to achieve, that will come later. So that's something you want to see as your long-term ultimate goal but the starting point is is where you find yourself right now. And if you've kind of fallen off from exercise or activity, there's a very natural inclination to jump back right where you left off, but you are not there anymore. So you need to be, yep. we, we need to be humble enough to admit and, and recognize where we are in the moment and start working there. And that way we won't uh, risk injury. There's actually a wonderful Swedish saying that translates roughly to hurry slowly. And what we mean by that <laughs> is that we are getting where we want to go as quickly as possible, but thoughtfully and mindfully. So not just rushing ahead. The second hack kind of ties into what we talked about already. Don't wait to feel inspired to exercise. That moment may not come, or it may not come often enough for you to get the exercise done as often as it should get done. So just see it as one of the non-negotiable tasks. You brush, you floss, you exercise. And over time, it just gets easier and easier. Once you get a habit going, the habit carries you uh, very far. And then I want to share something that I use myself as well. So when you think about exercise, you're going to work out right now if that's what you do, or you know that it's time to do your therapeutic exercises, your physical therapy homework. Don't think about the whole workout. Don't think about all the exercises you're going to do. That can feel overwhelming, and that will just be too high of a threshold, and it will, will hold you back. So just think about the first step. So for me, for example, that would typically be hopping on my stationary bike to warm up. Because once you've gotten going, you're not the same person anymore. Once you've gotten going a little bit, you've activated yourself, maybe your you know, adrenaline level's a little higher, and, and you've overcome that, that uh, hesitancy of getting going. Mm -hmm. And now it's so much easier mm -hmm to continue through the rest of the exercise. So just think about the first step, kind of like uh, ascending a flight of stairs, you do it one step at a time. That's fabulous. I, I find I often, even though I, I love my physical therapist, I, I, I know that I have to keep doing the exercises. Like I said, when I travel, sometimes it's hard to figure out what door can I attach these bands to without pulling off the doorknob sure. and, you know, that kind of, that, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I know it's really important, but sometimes getting myself motivated to do it is, is hard. And so I find myself, it's like, I'm getting ready to go to bed and it's like, oh, I haven't done my exercises yet. So I'm really going to apply that one myself. I think those are really great tips. Okay. Well, you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast, and your guest today was Dr. Lillian Holm, 
and goes by Hypermobility Doctor online, you definitely wanted to make sure to follow her. And Dr. Holm, I'm so grateful to you for coming on the Bendy Bodies podcast today and sharing your vast wisdom and knowledge with us. I think a lot of people are going to find this information so incredibly helpful. I think people here, you know, physical therapy is so important, but they've they've tried it and it hasn't always worked out the way they had hoped. And I think you just shared some incredible incredible information that I think is going to help a lot of people really get the outcomes that they want. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD podcast. Visit our new website at bendybodiespodcast.com where you can now view guest profiles and show notes with links to products and journal articles. Leave me a comment, sign up for updates, leave a review or a voicemail, and access the podcast on your favorite player all directly from our website. You may hear your voicemail in a future episode where we answer your question or dive into your gracious feedback. Follow us on Instagram at Bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories. So be a buddy and engage our community by using the hashtag Bendy buddy. That's hashtag B-E-N-D-Y-B-U-D-D-Y. You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at HypermobilityMD. Visit HypermobilityMD.com for information about medical services and one-on-one coaching. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. Opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the host or any particular organization. Sponsorship of the podcast does not necessarily mean an endorsement. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.